Tyler, do you know what day it is? I I honestly don't. But also, Brittany, does it even matter at this point? <laughs> no, because I swear to God, everything's blurring together. Like something that happened three weeks ago could have easily been three weeks ago or yesterday. And I'm not 100% sure positive of any, anything. Wow, words. Also not mm-hmm. positive about words. <laughs> <laughs> true but no i mean we we thought march was the longest month ever but here we are on april 385th and i just is time ever gonna stop <laughs> okay well i mean honestly i hope it doesn't um so listen we- i'm just begging for the inevitable entropy that we're all rushing towards like hurry up you know but we have a podcast where we talk about time ending too soon so yeah, we shouldn't wish but, our days away. Even it can know, be difficult. That's 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 a good point. That's fair. It's totally fair. But yes, April is like such a long month. Twenty twenty is going to feel like five years. <laughs> Do you think like my birthday is going to be anything except me sitting at home drinking? I mean, it would be that anyways. <laughs> but like, you know, being forced to do that, it makes it feel worse. Um. You know, we'll figure something out. You're going to have a good birthday this year, even though you're probably still going to be in your apartment. Fair. I'll have a cupcake. But you know what? It's fine. We're going to get through it, even though longest second month ever. But, you know, here we are, trucking along. (laughs) (laughs) So, do you ever sometimes in your head... So, you know those videos or, like, things that you read, memes and stuff, that's like the cat's diary? (laughs) Do you ever have, like, an internal monologue? It's like... Day 482 of quarantine, and I learned this and such thing. It'd be better if I had an example. I don't. I'm also not a cat. Oh, but you know what my cat's journal says? It says, day 487 of quarantine. Why is she still here? (laughs) That's it. (laughs) Yeah. No, I I think that is one interesting thing through all of this, though, is you get to learn a new side to your pets. I'm assuming it's the same for people who have, like, children or whatever, and... I'm sorry, just in general, if you have kids right now. But um, I've learned that my cats are assholes to each other. So much more than what I thought. <laughs> I'm like, y'all spend hours a day just, I, I'm uh, hoping play fighting. But that's that's all y'all do. Y'all just fight. They started a fight club. I thought I even knew that. Well, I mean, they didn't invite me, which is just pretty rude, honestly. <laughs> Well, hey everyone, this is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler, and I'm pretty sure we're slowly just losing our minds. <laughs> uh, I laugh because of the word slowly. I don't think it's too slow. <laughs> True. Um, True. But you know what? We've got another crazy, intense episode of Blood and Wine for you guys, so you can do that with your time. Yeah, you can lose your minds with us, but um, because of these uh, crazy, mind-blowing murder stuff. Just another reason to lose it. And if you want to um, join us on the journey and lose your minds right along with us, uh, why not check out Patreon? Yeah, I'm going to make <laughs> I'm gonna make that a abrupt, <laughs> hard a right bridge. turn. <laughs> it's a good, it's, it's a broken bridge, but it, you can still get across it. You know, it's, it's still standing. Um, but, uh, anywho, 
With that, with Patreon, I want to thank three amazing people, three of our newest Patreoners, Emily Steele and Hannah Urbanic, uh, our newest Chardonnay Syndicate members, and Heather Lundberg, who is our newest Cabernet Sauvignon convict. Thank you all so much for joining the family. We are so happy to have you. Hope y'all are taking some time to enjoy all of our murder minis. Uh, We're actually recording another one right after this episode that, I don't know about Brittany's case, but my case is a lot and one I had never heard of, so excited for y'all to hear that one. But thank y'all so much for joining. We could not, could not do this without you. Yes, welcome to the family and... um. Be sure you've also subscribed. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, find us on Pandora, however that works. I know you can somehow, but just make sure to subscribe and you'll get those notifications for all our new episodes. Well, let's just get right on into it. Let's dive into this episode, if if you will. Ooh, ooh, <laughs> uh, you know, that's, that's going to be a minus one for me, but um. uh, okay. <laughs> So Tyler brought the most intense case last episode, so this week I picked the topic again, and leveling up like I said we would, we're actually going to be talking about victims whose bodies were found in water. So there are a lot of cases out there where someone has, you know, been disposed of in a lake, a river, the ocean, just countless ones all the way to some really crazy bodies of water that's not really a body of water but like elisa lamb when she was found in the water tower above the cecil hotel Mm -hmm. so the things that water does to a body is really horrifying to be honest with the accelerated decomp time the washing away of a lot of evidence when bodies are found in water that can be a huge issue in a case. So this week we took that and that's what we're going to be talking about. So this is going to be sciency and gruesome. Sciency and gruesome and also just really I think hit home on the individuals who are found in water and still are able to be identified just how crazy and intense that is that with all of this they're still able to. Yep. And before we talk about our cases we're gonna talk about some wine so i'm ready for this and i'm just gonna keep talking because i get to share my wine first yes Brittany, tell me um let's uh let's see what wine you're drinking today and before you do tell me uh if uh britney listeners if y'all can in the background hear i don't know something musical something something um one of my neighbors decided uh to bring his guitar banjo ukulele i don't know what onto his balcony and it's giving us all a free concert that none of us asked for so (laughs) that's happening right now honestly you know what if he has all of them all three of them a banjo a guitar and a ukulele well, you got two hands, so you can only, one of them's being left out, so. All right. Well, I will keep that in mind if I hear strumming of the chords, but I want to tell you about my wine, okay? Okay. All right. <laughs> um, also, the strumming of the chords sounds like, I don't know, an episode of Game of Thrones. 
the episode before the big battle. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, but yeah, uh, your wine. Do tell. <laughs> so this is one, full disclosure, I've already had this one, um, but it is so good. As y'all all know, I'm on my Sauvignon Blanc kick because two years of talking to Tyler has made that happen. But yep. this is one that I got in my total wine order, which side note, they do curbside pickup. It's phenomenal. They also do delivery. But it is the 2019 Kia Ora Marlboro Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand. And guys, this one is phenomenal. Now, me personally, I still do like French Sauvignon Blancs better, but this one is wonderful. It's very, it's a light bodied wine. It's very juicy and vibrant with aromas of passion fruit and lime zest. Very classic, very typical of the Marlboro region. The palate balances a very bright acidity with that passion fruit, nectarine, and herbal notes. So kind of those grassy undertones. And it's very fruit forward with a crisp finish. So it's delicious. So there's this one. And then they also have, this was like $8. And then there's also, I think, like an estate version that's um, more around the $12 range. And I'm going to be super honest with you guys. My mom and I tried that. It's not very good. We were so disappointed because we had Uh. tried this one together and we were like, awesome. This estate one, it's going to be this, but just like leveled up. That was not the case. It had so many tastes of herbs and it wasn't even grass. It was like deep herbs coming out of a white wine. It was gross. Maybe we had a bad bottle. Really not sure. But this one, which honestly, isn't that like the best news ever when you find out that the cheaper one is actually the better one? Yes. (laughs) So highly, highly recommend this one. It is a screw top. So I am going to get into it. Uh, Aren't screw tops just the best? They really are. I mean, I know it's probably unpopular opinion, but... I would perf- I would take a screw top over cork any day. I mean, one, you know, saving the earth and all, but two, it's just, it's so much easier. It is so much easier. So, I know I love this one. I've obviously already said that, but I can't wait to have it again today. But before I taste this and share with all of y'all what I like, think about it and what I like, um, Tyler, you told me you were doing something different, and I didn't really know what that means, because you've been on this kick of different things over the last couple of weeks. So I have. What uh, what wine did you pick for this episode? So today, I am actually drinking a vermouth on the rocks, and I know a lot of y'all are probably like, vermouth? Uh, isn't that just what you put in, like, a Manhattan or a martini or a, what's the other one, Negroni? I've never had a Negroni or Manhattan, so... All very Um, good, by the way. Well, if you like whiskey, I don't. Which, yes, you do put vermouth in those, but also it is a drink, an aperitif that you can have on the rocks. Um, I didn't know that. I actually first realized that uh, watching an episode of, I think it was Gourmet Makes on the Bon Appetit YouTube channel, which... Brittany just rolled her eyes because I am obsessed with Bon Appetit and never shut the hell up about it. (laughs) I mean, it's a good thing to be obsessed with, though. Like, Tyler has taught me so much about cooking at a time when it's very, very beneficial. 
So listen, keep watching. I love love cooking. Um, But yes, I would, I would die for Claire from the Bon Appetit test kitchen. Um, And in one of the episodes, Claire makes um, a vermouth for someone. And I was like, holy shit. I didn't know. I didn't know you could just straight up drink vermouth. I didn't either. I honestly thought it was just one of those things that you mix with, which I mean, no, they don't like you can pretty much drink anything alone if you want to, except like grenadine. But that's also not a drink. It's not really a liquid. (laughs) I mean, true. But a lot of the drinks that are mixers and stuff like that, you could, but you don't think uh, St. Germain or Chambord. Or things like that. I mean, you could drink them on your own. Why would you? True. I, that's I put uh, vermouth in that same category same. of like, oh, I mean, technically you can drink anything, but ew. But no, vermouth. Uh, it's a fortified wine. It's an aperitif, and it's meant to be mixed with drinks or drink alone. And there are a lot of different types of vermouth. Generally, it is a uh, white wine that's fortified. Sometimes you can find it in red. And it being a fortified wine, what that means is it's basically wine with stuff added. So in the case of vermouth, they often add different herbal flavors or different things to it. And its alcohol percentage is a little bit higher than normal wine. Like, I think 16 to 20% is the general range. Uh, brandy is another example of a fortified wine. Um, a lot of the higher alcohol dessert wines are fortified. I think any wine product that's 18% or above is automatically considered fortified wine. Oh. That might not be true, but I'm pretty sure that is the case. Well, I've never tasted vermouth outside of a mixed drink, so I'm very interested to see what you think about this. I hadn't until earlier today because, uh, spoiler alert, I made one of these earlier to make sure, is this something I'm going to want to drink? <laughs> That's and, totally fair. Uh, my first sip, I was like, oh, fuck, I just wasted money on a bottle of vermouth. But then... Like, I don't know, a couple minutes later, I had another drink and was like, ooh, actually, that's different. And it's probably because, since it's a wine, it needed some time to breathe. And so, like I mentioned earlier, there's lots of different types of vermouth. Um, There's also different uh, kind of flavor ranges. You can go from extra dry to sweet. Sometimes in the sweet category, uh, there's different levels and italian sweet is going to be a lot more middle of the road than a french sweet vermouth so i'm drinking gallo sweet red and y'all know me how i am not a fan of sweet things this is sweet by name and i mean technically sweet but really it's only sweet in the way that it's not dry if that makes sense That definitely makes sense. So, sorry, Tyler was just looking at me because I got really distracted. It just started pouring like crazy. And I'm wearing noise-canceling headphones, so I can't hear any of it. But looking at it, it's intense, you guys. So, we'll see Uh if if that gets picked up at all. Okay. Well, it's bright and sunshiny for me um, in the way that I'm about to be blinded by the light. (laughs) (laughs) No. Uh, But to make a vermouth 
straight up is super easy. You just pour it over ice. And if you want, you can add a lemon twist. I don't remember how to make a twist because like without the actual like that special little tool. utensil. Yeah. So instead I just did a wedge of lime. And by that I mean lemon. <laughs> I was about to say, um, I was like, wow, you completely changed this up. <laughs> no, uh just a wedge of lemon in mine and so you'll you'll hear ice tinkling, clinkling. Probably not tinkling. Uh <laughs> you'll hear ice uh from my end. But yeah, so I'm excited and uh, I don't know. I'm ready to drink. Alright, well, cheers. Cheers. I know I say this every time, but it's that lime zest and grass that I just never thought those were two things I would love together so much. Fair. Uh, in mine, I'm getting the brightness uh, from the citrus, from the lemon. There's that herbal quality that's maybe a little bit licorice a little bit of clove going on in there, and then a little bit of dried fruit, maybe some dried cherry in the vermouth. It's good. That sounds and really good, dude. It is. And I will say, with there being so many different kinds of vermouth, I mean, you can drink or mix any kind of vermouth, but there are ones that are kind of made with the idea of this is how you use it. Oh, yeah. And it was all very overwhelming. Uh, so I was like, <laughs> I don't know, this one looks fine and cheap, because my bottle was like nine bucks. And I later, I eat today, found a list of like different kinds of vermouths and what they're best for. And the one I'm drinking is like, it's best used in mixing. And I'm like, oh, well, still good for drinking, though. Well, and honestly, you were shopping online. So it's not as it's not the same as like walking down the aisle and being able to look at all the different things you have to go to like this page to that page to search to and you were looking at something new. Yeah. So um, I'm excited, though. I was worried that you know, shit, am I going to be able to drink this whole thing? Another nice thing about vermouth, yes, it is a wine product, but after you open it, it does need to be stored in the fridge, and it can last up to six months. It will oxidize, but because it's fortified and in the fridge, it'll do that a little bit slower than regular wine. That's really good to know. All right. But I'm probably going to finish my bottle off this episode. Dude, that's a lot. It's 18%. It, wait, is it the same size bottle or is it a little smaller? It's the same size bottle, but I also had one earlier. Oh, I guess that's true. You're already working your way in. Working that? No. Okay. Um, But yeah, we have our drinks now. Um, I got my vermouth. You've got your Sauvignon Blanc. And um, you're doing the first case. So, Brittany, tell me about your body of water. Yeah, we've got to think of a better title for this episode. We, we, we do. <laughs> Body of Water sounds like, I don't know, the title of like a Patricia Cornwell novel. <laughs> it really does. It, it does. Okay, so mine will be The Murder of Heather Rich. The sources I used, a really fantastic article in Texas Monthly called A Bend in the River by Pamela Colliffe. It was written in like 2002, I think. And then also the Wikipedia article on the murder of Heather Rich. Heather Rich was the third of four children, and she was the only daughter of Gail and Dwayne Rich. Heather lived in Walrika, Oklahoma, 
which is in the southern part of the state, and it's right by the Red River, which, for those of y'all in Texas and Oklahoma, you know that that is the border between the states, but for those that don't, now you do. So she was a really avid horse rider, very talented musician, and she was described by a lot of her family as a very naive girl with a big heart. She was very successful in school, and she was very popular, and she had a noticeably excitable personality. So she was just, oh. like, bouncy and fun, and just everyone loved her. Let me guess. She lit up a room when she walked in. Probably. <laughs> um, according to one of her friends, though, Heather was actually really troubled. And she started to exhibit some troublesome behavior both at home and at school in the late summer and early fall of 1996. Her classmate and former boyfriend, 17-year-old Randy Wood, he would later say that this emotional behavior stemmed from Heather's relentlessness at the fact that Walrika had so little things to do. So basically, she was like, I'm in this small town. I'm bored of shit. There's nothing here for me. Uh, I get it. On September 27th, she and another girl had been temporarily suspended from the Walrika High School Eagles cheerleading team for being noticeably drunk um, on the sidelines of one of the games during one of their performances. So clearly Heather was, you know, showing this change, this like switch that flipped. At about 11 p.m. on October 2nd, 1996, Heather snuck out of her house without her parents knowing to meet a 17-year-old Walrika High School senior named Joshua Bagwell in a trailer park at the rear of the house of Bagwell's grandfather. And so Bagwell had already been drinking with a couple of his friends, 19-year-old Curtis Gambill and Heather's former boyfriend, Randy Wood. So these three guys are hanging out, drinking, and they called Heather on the phone and they were like, Hey, Heather, you should totally come join us at the trailer. Like we're having a good time. And Heather's like, hell yeah. So a little bit after Heather got there, Wood and Gamble left Heather and Bagwell alone for about an hour. Supposedly this was like their very first date and the two of them just wanted to be two of them. So when Wood and Gamble returned to the trailer after about an hour, both Bagwell and Heather were naked And there was a bottle of gin that had been half consumed. Heather was extremely drunk, later being described as largely insensible. um, So she didn't really know what was going on. And Bagwell would later claim that the two had engaged in consensual sex. So these three guys and Heather, they're all really drunk. And the guys started goading on each other to sexually assault Heather while she was naked and almost unconscious. What the fuck? Yeah, seriously. Like, talk about one of the most disgusting things ever. Wood then proceeded to sexually assault Heather before Gambill um, also engaged in unconsensual sex with a semi-conscious Heather. And shortly after Gambill raped her, she started to wake up and she started screaming and crying. Like, she realized what was going on. So these three guys are like, shit, she knows what happened. And they're like, okay, well, she's going to accuse us all of rape. And so Gamble then decides to kill Heather. And with a measure of certain force, you know, he successfully persuaded Bagwell and Wood to assist him. Granted, this version of events is one of the possible versions. Um, You'll see as this case continues how this shifts. 
But according to Wood, Gamble pointed his shotgun at him, ordered him to dress Heather before he and Bagwell carried her into Bagwell's grandfather's pickup truck. So Joshua Bagwell, this was his grandfather's trailer and land. And so they're like, okay, put her in the truck. Bagwell then seems to drive around like very aimlessly around the southern border of Oklahoma. All the while, they're driving around for about an hour. Gambill is saying, like, we've got a killer, we've got a killer. And Bagwell ends up at another property his grandparents own. And this is, you know, like, here's our murder location. But Gambill was like, no, dude, this is not a good place. Your family owns this land. It's going to be traced back to us. Like, this is not where we're doing it. I mean, smart. Yeah, it's not... Not a dumb realization. It's it, it would be easily traced back. Gamble at this point, he's like, dude, let me drive. And he starts driving towards a cement, cement bridge on a rural road in Belknap Creek, Texas. So they cross the border. At this location, Gamble retrieved his shotgun from the vehicle and he ordered Bagwell and Wood to get her out and put her on the side of the road. Bagwell and Wood carried Heather towards the bridge where Gambill proceeded to shoot her several times in the head and torso with the shotgun, all while she was laying on the ground. So she had clearly been, like, knocked unconscious or something to be just laying there like this. Yeah. What the actual fuck? Like, how does any of this, from the beginning, go through the minds of a high schooler? I think that's one of the most terrifying things of cases that involve young people, is that a young person could think of this violent of a way to quote-unquote solve their problem. Yeah, like to, to have the mind that says, oh, she's drunk, let's rape her. And then to say, oh, she knows, let's murder her. How the fuck does anyone, regardless of age, how does your mind do that? I, I, I know. It is something I will never be able to comprehend. I don't get it either. Wood sat inside of the pickup truck as Gambill approached Heather with the shotgun in his hand. Wood um, said he then covered his face with his hands before hearing the first shot and then hearing the other shots. He then got out of the truck to notice Gambill appearing, you know, kind of like dazed at what he had just done. And then Bagwell took one of Heather's shoelaces and used her shoelace to secure a rock to weight her body. And then they took Heather's body and threw it over the guardrail into the creek below. Then they tried to conceal the extensive bloodstains at the murder scene by, like, kicking and throwing dirt all over the ground. So just covering up all the blood. The next morning, Heather's parents realized that um, her bed had not been slept in, All of her possessions were, you know, seemed untouched and her bedroom window was open. Gail and Dwayne reported Heather missing to the Jefferson County Sheriff's Department. Despite the fact that Heather had not taken any of her personal possessions, when police learned from Gail that Heather had recently, like, they'd had an argument about a $300 phone bill that, you know, Heather was responsible for. The investigators were initially just like, okay, Heather, she most likely temporarily ran away from the house to stay with some friends, and she's going to return in a few hours. Gail was like, you have got to be fucking kidding me. And she said, when your daughter is missing, you can stay at home. 
So she and her family, they started making their own inquiries around Warika uh, to try to get some information about Heather's whereabouts. They would even subsequently hire a private investigator to assist in the search for their daughter. Oh, God. The Oh, they're a teenager. They ran away. We don't need to look into it. Oh, fuck no. That is one of those assumptions that drives me crazy. Well, because it's like, let's say... I don't, I don't personally know the data, but let's say it is the most common thing. Okay. Doesn't mean it happens in all cases and doesn't mean that you should stop investigating at all. Or like, they didn't stop investigating. They didn't even start. Exactly. Like, cool. That's the obvious conclusion you want to go to. Good for you. Find something that disproves it. Or fucking find something that proves it. Or supports it, other than, oh, well, y'all fought over a phone bill, so obviously she ran away. On October 10th, a farmer and his daughter were walking along the Red River when they found Heather's body partially submerged. Due to the contamination and decomposition and the sheer number of gunshot wounds she'd received including the fact that she'd been shot once in the back of the head, her face and body were largely unrecognizable. Initially, her body was tentatively identified by her father uh, because he recognized a gold signet ring that she was wearing on her finger, and it was a gift that she had gotten for her 16th birthday. But later, they used dental records to officially identify the body that was found as Heather Rich. And how long after her murder was that? About eight days. Wow. So she was in the water for over a week. Yeah. And like we said, water accelerates that decomp process. And water, especially in like a river, is constantly moving. So there's like the erosion and the decomp and just, and she was brutally shot in in very, like multiple times. And so it's like there were so many different aspects of making IDing her very difficult. So thankfully her teeth were still intact because that's that's how they could do it. Yeah, I'm honestly shocked that her teeth were still intact since she was shot in the head. I know. Heather's autopsy later revealed that she had been shot nine times with an M9 Winchester shotgun with pellets from the buckshot rounds fired also hitting her body in several locations. So shotguns... Tyler, correct me if I'm wrong, but, like, these are the ones that the bullet um, comes out and kind of, like, explodes and goes everywhere. Like, little pellets go everywhere. I mean, yeah, it's basically being shot by 20 or 30 mini bullets every single time the trigger's pulled. Yeah. So take that and multiply by nine because she was shot nine times. Oh, my God. In conjunction with the pattern of the bloodstains discovered at what they found to be the preliminary preliminary crime scene, the trajectory of the shotgun wounds indicated that Heather had most likely been shot as she lay face down with her death being almost instantaneous. So if she was unconscious and they started to shoot, she pretty much died immediately. A total of 14 investigators were assigned to Heather's murder and the FBI was also involved due to the possibility of a federal kidnapping charge if she, you know, if she was taken across state lines against her will, which we know that she was. By the second week of their investigation, 
The police started focusing on a tip that they had gotten from Heather's best friend from the cheerleading squad that Heather may have left home to go to a party at one of their classmates' houses, and they named this kid as Joshua Bagwell. So Bagwell was questioned, and he initially claimed that he and a friend of his named Randy Wood had not seen Heather on October 2nd, and that they'd been playing dominoes and drinking whiskey and beer in his trailer until about 6 a.m. the following day. And Wood would corroborate this same statement. Of course he would. The police had found out that the buckshots fired from this Winchester shotgun had actually been a specific brand. They soon learned that there was only one store in Walrika that stocked that brand. So, of course, they went to go talk to the owners. The investigators discovered that just days before the murder, 20 rounds had been purchased by Joshua Bagwell. The owner said they knew... It was Bagwell, like that's who purchased it. Here I can show you the receipt. Also, there was some other kid with him. And the store owner later identified Bagwell in a police lineup. The police then found out that Bagwell spent a lot of time with Gamble. So Gamble was arrested on October 24th and questioned. He was given a polygraph test and he failed. And he subsequently agreed to allow investigators to take his shotgun and, you know, do ballistic fingerprinting on it to determine if it was the firearm that was used to murder Heather. Well, obviously it was. And so ballistics determined that was the shotgun. When police confronted Gambill with like, dude, yeah, this was the gun. That's when he confessed to being a participant in Heather's murder. And he also named Bagwell and Wood again. Heather's former boyfriend as participants in the murder. So he was like, yep, I was involved, but hey, so were these other guys. So were Joshua and Randy. So according to Gamble, Wood was the instigator of the crime and he was the one that was the actual murderer. He, Gamble and Bagwell, they were acting upon Wood's instructions. So like he, he, they were doing what Wood told them to do. Gamble said that Wood's motive had been sexual jealousy due to the fact that Heather had had sex with Joshua Bagwell, but not him, Randy Wood, her ex-boyfriend. So is this the part where you had said earlier, like, the stories change depending on who says it? Because yep. in the earlier one, he was saying, like, oh, I stood, I sat in the car and closed my eyes and wasn't a part of it. And now it's like... You know, the other one saying, oh, he was the one who actually did it all. Yeah. Previously, Wood was the one in the car, but now Gambill is saying, no, he's the one that did it, not me. So these boys are just turning on each other or supporting each other and then changing stories again. Like, it's it's all of the above. Ugh. Well, either way, whether you were in the car or out of the car, sorry, bitch, uh, you were fully a part of this. You not... Stopping them uh, means you were essentially pulling the trigger, whether your hand was there or not. Bagwell and Wood were also arrested on October 24th. Bagwell refused to admit any culpability in Heather's murder. He said he had the right to silence and refused to submit to a polygraph test. Shortly thereafter, his family hired a team of high-profile lawyers to defend him. But Randy Wood willingly agreed to provide a written statement in which he confessed to his being a participant in the murder, although he was adamant that Curtis Gambill was the one that instigated the entire crime and the individual who shot and killed Heather. So a lot of this goes in line with what I said earlier, 
And a lot Mm -hmm. of that is probably because of this written statement. It's what they have like written down. Wood also added that Joshua Bagwell had been a knowing and willing participant. So he's like, yeah, I was involved. Gamble pulled the trigger. Joshua Bagwell was a part of it too. Wood further claimed that he didn't believe that Gamble was actually serious when he was like vocalizing his intentions to murder Heather until Gamble had parked the pickup truck on the Belknap Creek Bridge. He also agreed to submit to a polygraph test to verify his version of events and the polygraph, the results were in line with his written statement. Initially, all three individuals were charged with the kidnapping of Heather and denied bail in Oklahoma. All would subsequently be formally charged with first-degree murder in Texas on October 25th. So the trials of all three of them were held in Texas, and because of the laws in Texas, they were tried as adults. Gamble accepted a plea bargain whereby he agreed to plead guilty to Heather's murder admitting to being the individual who had physically taken her life in exchange for the prosecution agreeing not to seek the death penalty. So he was found guilty and sentenced to a term of life in prison with a potential possibility of parole after 30 years. And as a part of his plea bargain, Gamble also agreed to testify against Bagwell in his upcoming trial. So in Bagwell's trial, He refused to admit any culpability in her murder, claiming that his intercourse with Heather after Gambill and Wood had initially left the two alone in the trailer had been consensual. He's like, this was our first date with that. Like, that's what that whole night was about. And he said he later left the trailer prior to Gambill and Wood actually discussing killing Heather and that he had ultimately believed that the trio were simply driving Heather around in an effort to sober her up before returning her home. So he's just acting like he has no idea that this was the plan. Except uh, even if everything he is saying is true, still leaves out the fact that after his what he calls consensual sex with Heather, he let his two friends rape her. I know. So I'm like, "Mm," with that, I don't believe a fucking word he's saying. No. He further stated that he was unaware of any actual plan to murder her. And on the third day of testimony, Wood testified under oath that Gamble had largely orchestrated the murder, had shot and killed Heather, and that Bagwell had been a full knowing participant in the act. So Wood testifying was just like, no, Bagwell knew he was a participant. Joshua Bagwell was convicted of capital murder on February 14th, 1998, and sentenced to a term of life imprisonment. Later, he would also be sentenced to an additional sentence of 99 years for conspiracy to commit capital murder. So the third trial was Randy Wood's trial, and he was being tried for capital murder later in 1998. So all three of these trials happened like one right after the other, and Randy's was the Mm -hmm. last. So against the advice of his attorney, Wood declined another plea bargain that was offered before his trial, and he chose to plead not guilty to Heather's murder even though he said he he was aware, but he never intended for Heather to be killed and that he had not physically taken her life himself. Wood was found guilty, though, of capital murder on August 25th, 1998, and the state did not seek the death penalty, so he was automatically sentenced to life in prison, and he will first become eligible for parole in 2036. 
Over the years, there have definitely been appeals, but they've all, all three of them have lost those, and they are still currently imprisoned, serving their sentences in three different prisons in Texas. So that is the murder of Heather Rich. And seriously, if you're wanting to find like more information and dive a little bit deeper, especially into like the trial and stuff, check out that Texas Monthly article by Pamela Akolov. The Texas Monthly number one is a phenomenal magazine. Yeah. Honestly, yeah. If you're into true crime, I mean, I, I can't count the number of episodes that we've used Texas Monthly articles. If it's a case we've done in Texas and it's intense, we probably got a lot of it from a Texas Monthly article. Yeah. This is one of those murders that is so heartbreaking because like we were talking about, it's these high school kids making really stupid decisions. And I know these these three boys had gotten into trouble before. Like, they, this wasn't like an, oh my gosh, I can't believe this happened. They were also troubled teenage kids. And it just really sucks that Heather got mixed up with them and that something happened that night to where they thought murdering her was going to be the only way to get away with raping her. Maybe they shouldn't have ever decided to get really drunk and rape her in general like that was a horrible decision obviously also okay they're bad kids in high school you know whatever that means even if it's they robbed banks or whatever i don't know to go from that to rape and murder that is such a fucking leap i'm like oh i know if if the police were aware of them at any level close to what they did to heather that that's not surprising then they should have been in jail a long fucking time before they had any opportunity to do this i'm glad the three of them got life and that it doesn't Me really too. seem like they're getting out anytime soon just because you're eligible yeah. for parole does not mean you get it so that's the heartbreaking case of heather rich Fuck. all right what case did you pick what body of water are you going to tell me about well, my body of water is actually a sewer. Oh, gross. Yeah, yeah, I went there. Or I guess more specifically, a sewage treatment plant. Because the case I'm doing today is the case of the sewer murders, also known as the sewage plant murders. Okay, that's really weird and gross. And I just got like some Dennis Nielsen vibes. Remember when he was like flushing body parts? you uh yeah when i was doing research uh for my case he came up a couple times to the point where i was like oh my god was he involved no just uh just the search terms also pulled him but uh the sources i used the wikipedia page for the sewer murders a blog called olis cold cases der perfecte mord by a blogger by the name of Coolman on Blogspot. That was me trying to speak German, because this case takes place in Germany, outside of Frankfurt. And the I also used an article from Revolvi. So the sewer murders, um, also again known as the sewage plant murders, or as they're known in German, Kanalmorde, or Klarenlagenmorde, which, again... Sorry if I'm sounding a little Norwegian there. It's close I can get German. Um, 
But these were a series of murders of young boys in the Frankfurt Rhine Main region from the 1970s to the 1980s. And these were young boys from 1976 to 1983. Seven boys and young men from the ages of 11 to 18 were murdered. They were from the Frankfurt area and most likely the Offenbach station area where many of them worked as sex workers. And that's likely how they met the murderer. Oh, God. Unfortunately. Yeah. The boys, their hands were tied behind their back with rope or with cord and then most of them were killed with some kind of blunt force but for some of them the blunt force impact wasn't what killed them they were drowned in the sewers oh my god as soon as you said the blunt force wasn't what killed them i was like oh shit they drowned all of them were pretty much found in the same area, or most of them were. That was the sewage treatment plant. So, whether alive or dead, they were dumped into the sewers and taken to the sewage plant, which, the long time they were submerged in the sewers, and also the damage done by the big screw conveyors that pull some of the raw sewage up through the plant. Oh, God. I mean, basically shredded and crushed many of their bodies identification was hard for a lot of them yeah and on only one of the victims was the clear signs of blunt force trauma to the head found so it was almost like an assumption that that's how they were all killed because there's only one that they could determine that was cause of well potential cause of death i think they could see signs of it on others But they weren't able to 100% say that was exactly what that was, except on one victim. So I'm going to jump into the timeline and the victims themselves. So on September 7th of 1976, um, an unidentified male victim, and unfortunately this victim is still unidentified. Um, We don't know them even today. But we do know that they were between the ages of 15 and 18. They were found in Stagenrad Glesen, and they were completely naked. They were only wearing socks, and they were actually found near a footpath in a forest um, in this part of Germany. Their body was very heavily mummified, and it had actually partially been skeletonized, so... Because it had been lying there for at least six weeks. Whoa. So this is like pre-sewage victim. Yes. Okay. Like first dumping ground area happened to be Mm -hmm. this place. Yeah. This is the only victim, I think, that was found not um, in the sewage system. But on their body, there was this very violent and obvious skull fracture. And that was the probable cause of death. And since their identity was not able to be found, they weren't able to match him up with any kind of nearby missing persons cases or eyewitness cases. The police had the idea that he might have been a foreigner who was traveling through West Germany at this time um, and not someone who lived in West Germany. Oh, well, that would 
But that would make sense then as to why back in the 70s they couldn't identify him. Because if he wasn't from the area and they don't know where, you don't even know where to look at missing persons and surrounding. That's one of the crazy, scary things about someone who's murdered while traveling. If they don't have any identification, you can literally travel anywhere. So it's not like you could assume they were from a neighboring city. Yeah. They could literally be from anywhere. Yeah. Especially if if you're traveling through large countries like West Germany at the time. You know, okay, let's see how many travelers went through here. That's not a number that's able, you're able to go through each and every one. No, because the answer is a fucking lot. Yeah. You know, how many people traveled through Andorra during this month? Okay, we can probably figure that out. But Germany or England or the US, Australia, any of these huge countries, you can't. That's not feasible. Mm-hmm. So now we flash forward about six years. So this took place on May 23rd of 1982. And Eric, who was 17, his body was found behind an inflow in the sewage system and his body had significant damages uh his right thigh had been torn off his pelvis and his skull had been smashed and his bones were exposed oh my god it was violent and according to the autopsy report he was in a very advanced state of decomposition and he'd probably been lying there in this space for over six months. Because of all that, they could not determine his cause of death, what killed him. Right. Well, so he was in this area where he was, like, stuck? And that's how he didn't go any further? Oh my gosh. I'm horrified right now. Oh, this case is horrifying. Then we flash forward just a few months to September 19th of 82. And the body of Bernd Michel, who was also 17, he was found in a sewage plant actually blocking uh, what they called the collection rake. So you can use your imagination on what that is. I don't want to. Um, uh, He was most likely still alive when he was thrown down a manhole into the sewage system. And his cause of death was most likely drowning. His identification was very difficult because, again, not only being in the water, but specifically being in the sewage system where there is a ton of bacteria, uh, decomposition is very much sped up due to the chemicals, the environment, all of that. So his identification was very difficult, but with him being about 17 and having a very obvious overbite that was kind of characteristic of him that's how they were able to identify him and he was um another victim who was a sex worker in the frankfurt area so this is kind of starting to establish a pattern yeah they're like well number one they found at this point two bodies in the sewer system so that starts the pattern and now Mm -hmm. it's being added to yeah so now we jump to marcus hildebrand who was also 17. He was actually reported missing on April 28th of 1983, about a year later. But on July 2nd of 83, 
that's when he was finally found. Um, and he was in a pump sump in a sewage treatment plant. And according to the police, uh, he'd been washed up by the sewage pipe and his hands were handcuffed. But other than that, there weren't a ton of other really externally visible injuries. But one of the things that made him really recognizable were his tattoos. He had these tattoos on his upper arms that had these different motifs and it like prominently displayed the word fuck. And that was something that Marcus Hildebrandt had and was kind of recognizable for. Yeah. So Hildebrandt is one of the victims we have a little bit more information on and background on. Uh, he lived in the Hanau area and he'd been pretty well known in the heroin scene in Frankfurt since 1981, which if he's 17 in 1983, means he's a well-known heroin user since he was 15. That's always so scary when someone so young is involved in such yeah. heavy drugs. I feel like I was so naive at that time in my life that I couldn't, that I would not have been able to recognize that some of my peers were involved in these heavy drugs. Because to me, even to this date, like things like heroin are so scary. And yeah. I, it hurts my heart to know that there's youth that, get into mm -hmm. hardcore things like this oh i mean same that was a thought that never crossed my mind in high school but i also know that we both went to very large high schools of more than two thousand people so you know th there's no question in my mind that we walked by people every day that were suffering from things like this and yeah. just never knew or never had it cross our minds because it wasn't um it wasn't a world we were involved in or aware of. That is a great way to put it because, and that is aligned with me feeling naive. It's because it was a different world. It was one I wasn't a part of and therefore didn't realize exists. And when you're, yeah. when you're young, I get that mindset. When you're mm -hmm. an adult, you have more realization of these different worlds. Yeah, we were, we were very ignorant to the realities of the world in high school. And I think a lot of, people in high school are yeah i hate that both but. of our cases have such young victims me too um but hildebrandt he was doing an apprenticeship in frankfurt and he was living a quote-unquote unsteady life so i think he was using a lot of drugs doing a lot of not not great things um he was a sex worker in the gay scene there in frankfurt and he was last seen in January of 1983. And there he was accompanied by three men and had allegedly been claiming to traveling to Saarbrücken. But is that the last time he was like actually seen like, oh, those three men could have done something? Because that was in January. He wasn't reported missing until April and he his body wasn't found until July. But again, because of the sewage decomp, that time of murder, time of death, that's so hard to identify. Yeah. Because this last time he's seen with these three guys about to travel, he totally could have just been with three guys about to travel. Maybe they're going on a drug vacation to wherever that is. And then he came back and eight weeks later is when he was murdered. But it's not, it's not known. 
One of the things that you said that I keep thinking about is all of the bacteria that's in the sewer. And I would have Mm -hmm. never thought about that accelerating decomp even more than just water alone. And, you know, this is just like horrifying because there's, we haven't talked about it, but like the bloat and like just the things water does to a body that is no longer living is horrifying. And even when you are alive and your leg is for some reason submerged in water for a long time, like if you're in an accident or something, Oh my God. Yeah. It still has detrimental effects and it's a really scary thing to think about. And I'm really, you leveled this up way too much with it being the sewer. I'm just going to say. Yeah. Well, you mentioned um, people who are alive and I have a very specific memory. It's probably been 15 years since I saw this episode, but it was from one of those different survival shows. I don't think it was I survived. I don't think it was I shouldn't be alive. It was probably something on Lifetime. I don't know. Um, But this woman, she was driving and I think she fell asleep at the wheel and her car drove off the highway crashed into the woods into a creek and when she woke up she's like in the creek but she's down a ravine so no one can see her and there's like water up to her waist but like it's not rising or anything and i remember specifically she was talking about having like a bottle cap that she could reach and that was how she drank water she was trapped for like days and then finally was rescued but the water you know, saved her life, provided her with something to drink, but it also gave her gangrene and she had to get her legs amputated because of it, because of the infection, the bloat, what it does to you, even if you're still alive. I think I actually remember this exact episode because you pretty much described everything I was in my head when I said what I said. So guess we watched that together. But yeah, no, maybe it's like I said, water is Wonderful. But this is going to be super, super cheesy. But it's like that the too much of something is a bad thing. That's true with mm. water. Like, we need it for survival, but too much of it, and I can kill you. Yeah. Or like the fact that the biggest source of water in the world is the ocean, and we can't drink that water because it's salt water. The world's a weird place, man. Yeah. The world is ridiculous, honestly. So, move forward a couple months to September 9th of 1983. To our next victim, 14-year-old Fuad Rahal. Um, He was a Moroccan boy who lived there in Germany. And his body was found in this sewage treatment plant. When they first found him, it looked like he had drowned accidentally. Um, Maybe he had, like, inhaled marsh gases and, like, passed out, fallen into... I guess the marsh leads into the sewer. Again, I don't speak German, so I had to rough translate these articles into English. So some of these facts might um, be, I might be interpreting them incorrectly. So bear with me, y'all. I am monolingual. But when they actually started really looking into him, doing the autopsy, it became pretty clear that he was murdered. And he had been missing since September 1st of 83. That's when his parents reported him missing. So it was only a little bit over a week later that he was found after being reported missing. Oh. 
Yeah, I think he's the only victim I've talked about so far who was found rather quickly after being last seen or last reported missing. Yeah. And then our next victim was only about a month later, on October 11th of 83. And this was 11-year-old Oliver Tupicas. You know, at the beginning, you said the age range 11 to 18, but you kept saying 17, 17. I'm like, okay, all right, the 11, it's not real, it's not real. This is where it is. This is where it is. Um, Because, yeah, he was the youngest victim, and he was found in the same sewage treatment plant as Fuad. And he was probably thrown down a manhole cover after he was murdered. And they found traces of leg cuffs on his body, so his legs had been bound. And the last time he was seen alive, uh, he was actually running away from home. So he was 11. I couldn't really find any specifics on, like, why he was running away or whatever, but... He's 11. He's a sixth grader. It it literally could have been a multitude of reasons that make sense to someone who's 11. But he ran away and then was murdered. That's a nightmare. Yeah. Your whole case is a nightmare. Yes, it is. And now we're moving on to the final victim, uh, who was found on June 21st of 1989. So like six years later. And this was the body of Daniel Schaub, who was 14. And his bones and piece of his clothing were found in a, like, tributary from the drainage system. And when I first saw the state that it was six years later, I was like, oh, you know, he took that amount of time. Whoever did these murders took that amount of time in between. But in reality... Daniel had been missing since 1983 and was most likely killed during the same period as the other victims. It just took six years for his body to be found. I can't even imagine the state that his body was in when it was discovered. I mean, bones and piece of clothing are what they said, and I'm imagining that's literally all they could find. It sounds like it's all there was. Yeah. And so, with his murder most likely happening in 1983, other than the very first victim, these killings all took place over the span of just, like, a year and a half. I was thinking a lot larger span of time. It was all 1982 and 1983. So, kind of high-level overview. The very first murder, most likely it's believed to have happened where his body was discovered, but... After the killer kind of resumed killing and picked it back up, that was when they figured out that throwing a dead victim or a dying victim down into the sewer, that was a lot more effective way of getting rid of the evidence and getting rid of the body than to leave them in a forest or on a path. And this kind of quick disposal of the bodies, it let whoever was doing this carry out these murders even in the very densely populated Frankfurt area without really having to risk being caught. Because these victims, they were tied up, the killer then abused them and disposed of them, just throwing them down into the sewer. Then for sometimes weeks, sometimes months, sometimes even longer, uh, their bodies would be in the sewers, decomposing, and usually they would remain 
undetected in the system for a long time until eventually their bodies blocked different pipes or were found in these screw pumps that, again, basically are giant, twisting, sharp-ass screws-looking things that go through the pipes to separate solid material from liquid, and so you can just imagine the kind of damage that would do to a body. I feel like I can only partially imagine that type of damage. Yeah, I saw a picture, not of um, any victim, but just like, a this is what a screw pump looks like, and I wish I didn't. Yeah, I was thinking about looking it up, but I'm not going to. You shouldn't. But all of these things really led to this super advanced state of decomp, and really fast state of decomp, and that made IDing these bodies and these victims really hard. And that compounded with the fact that a lot of these victims were sex workers or uh, were in the like drug communities and stuff, more fringe individuals. It was really hard to find any information or motive or backstory on a lot of these victims. Yeah, I mean, people living a transient life are a lot of the times don't want your their, their background to be easily discovered. Yeah. Okay, so let's jump into possible motive. Who did this? I know. I've been wondering if there's if they have any leads on who this murderer is. Uh, that's about my answer for that. So basically, not really. Mm, basically. So a criminal psychologist, Rudolf Egg, he suggested that this suspect... They're probably a single person around 50 years old who doesn't have a lot of family ties or friends. And it's possible that whoever was doing this, this culprit, had themselves been a victim of sexual abuse and may have developed a quote-unquote disturbed relationship with their own homosexuality or just in regards to other same-sex people. Um, there inclinations more sway towards like sadistic bondage and the suspect likely moved from Glessen to Frankfurt in the end of the 70s and lived out their fetishes you know in the in the big city and the sex scene there in the city the suspect also most likely would have been very familiar with the area and was highly mobile so someone who could go places not really be recognized or someone that anyone would look at or look twice at and also the fact that he would throw his victims into the sewer after violating them that's a big hint towards this like deep-seated hatred he had so we have a profile we essentially have a profile we have a profile which is not supposed to be where it ends it's supposed to be what begins truly your ability to find this person yeah and you know there there were some suspects um one of them was a 40 year old storeman from offenbach who uh which was an area that a lot of the victims were either from or found near and this guy was mainly convicted of multiple sexual misconducts towards minors uh which included like molesting kids and he was the prime suspect he was 
apparently known for enticing homeless teens into his summer house in the Weiderwald area where he would perform these quote-unquote sadistic sex games with them and was said to act very brutal during them, but would then bribe his victims with money to keep quiet and not talk about what he did to them. Which, I really don't like the phrase sex games with them, because I'm like... Torture? "Mm, No, this just sounds like torture and rape. Yeah. Sex games implies some kind of consensuality between it, and uh, first off, when your victim is a child, no. Second off, when your victim is, you know, homeless, and there's that inherent power imbalance, and no. And uh, also, if you're bribing them with money to keep quiet, uh, no. So I'm, I don't I don't really like the the word sex games there, but another reason he was like the prime suspect is that investigators found that Marcus Hildebrand had visited the same gay bars that this guy did in Frankfurt, but there wasn't sufficient evidence to tie him to all of these. They did find traces of blood at his summer house, but it didn't match Hildebrand. Oh. But he did know at least two of the other victims, aside from Hildebrandt. And so police were able to get a warrant, or I don't even know if they needed a warrant in the 80s in West Germany. Probably did. I don't know. But they were able to go into his house to look for evidence. And they found a gas pistol. They found several knives. um, They found handcuffs. But all of the evidence they could find was circumstantial. Yeah. And so, because of that, there were never any charges that were filed. So, to this day, the killer, the motive, and even the identity of the first victim are still unknown, and this case remains unsolved. There is so little information. Yeah. I mean, this was a case that I went back and forth on doing, because... It is intense, but there's so little that's known. You know, we have a framework of some of these victims, but even even what happened to them exactly, we don't know. Okay. Well, um, yeah. I guess the next step is postmortem. I, yep, let's, uh, let's dive right in. Let's hop, skip it, a jump into straight into postmortem. I think I'm going to lead this one because... I think yours was the most intense, and it it is because of this level of mystery, how gruesome it is, and that there's still so many questions. Like, I, I guess that's the same as the mystery, but these victims were transient people, so identifying them was difficult. I'm glad and also surprised that so many were be were able to be identified with such harsh circumstances that they were placed in um, after murder, mm-hmm. being thrown in the sewer. After or before, we, you know, don't know how a lot of these victims died, if it was before or after um, being disposed in the sewer, but it's so intense that I don't even really know how to, like, move on with anything in this very moment, because this is one of the most disturbing cases I've heard. Same, which which was the ultimate prevailing reason why I was like, no, I need to do this case. Um, And yeah, when I was first researching it, I was like, well, how do you not... Like, how are they not able to find out anything about how these victims were killed? You know, I mentioned earlier on that 
there's a little evidence that at least one person uh, was killed with blunt force trauma. So they're kind of assuming most of them were. And I was like, that doesn't make sense. How could you not know? But then diving into the research and how the sewage affects the decomp and everything. Well, if someone's like lungs and organs have completely decomposed, how are you going to really be able to figure out, well, did they drown to death? Right. And just with how quickly you can decompose. Essentially, think of it if you're familiar with like a compost pile, how quickly your compost can turn to mulch and be unrecognizable. Sewage is very similar to that with the added water. Um, But I will say, when you were doing your case, my mindset was, okay, well, Brittany, Brittany brought the intense case this episode. Ultimately, I agree with you that my case is more intense, but it wasn't something I realized until I really was saying it out loud. Because your case was terrifying on a relatable level. I I think your case is one that, as much as so many of us don't want to think about, so many parts of your case happen every day in every town. Yeah. Well, and even when you look at the aspect of being young, or not even young, but just being out with people and drinking too much, and not really Mm -hmm. having full control of where you are and what you're doing and what someone is doing to you because you're inebriated. And that's scary. And that's a situation that's all too common. Yeah, your case. It's the kind of thing that this is gonna take it very much outside. So y'all bear with me. But it's one of those things that like, for me, horror movies, the only ones that are actually scary are the ones that are too real. Or ones that are situations you could put yourself in. For me, horror movies that are like aliens that do crazy shit. Or the clown who's in the sewer being like, hey, what's up, bitches? Like, there's jump scares. There's scary elements. But by and large, it's not something you can put yourself in. Right. But the ones that are... The ones you could very much see yourself a part of that narrative. That's the true horror. And for me, that's what your case is. I can 100% see myself in that situation or a part of that narrative. Knowing someone who goes through that and all of that. Because it's all too common. And that's what makes that truly fucking horrifying. I think the intensity of both of our cases are definitely different levels, like equal, yeah. but on different scales. Yeah, I can, I can absolutely agree with that. But for, for this one, I, I think because of the victim count and mystery and the fact that there's like literally no leads, nothing, nothing we can go off of. We've got the profile, mm-hmm. but yours was more intense. So I will pick the topic again for next week's episode. Okay. Okay. Um, all right. Well, be sure to do us a huge favor and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. If you're enjoying this podcast, if we're helping you get through this quarantine, like we are helping ourselves get through this quarantine, uh, be sure to go and leave us a review. We really appreciate it. Yes. And while you're doing that, 
Make sure to like and follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Also, reminder, y'all, if y'all haven't checked it out, we do have a website, bloodandwinepodcast.com. You can check out our merch store there if you want some of the comfiest t-shirts you have ever worn. Oh my god, I... Literally... Yes. I just got a new one, and I love it. I now have, like, three different (laughs) t-shirts. Well, and let me tell y'all, let's be real. There are a lot of t-shirts out there that might be screen printed or ones you get that might be merch t-shirts that you wash like three or four times and you're like, and it's peeling and great. Guess this is an inside shirt now. I am garbage with washing my clothes, <laughs> i.e., yeah, I know I should turn these inside out to wash or probably not wash them on super brutal death, get all the stains out wash that I do every single load on. Um, That's what I do. And the one I have with our current logo, I mean, I've had for at least a year. Yeah, yeah. Probably longer. It is still probably one of the comfiest t-shirts I own. Still, everything is gorgeous. One of my favorite t-shirts. Highly, highly recommend. Check it out. Well, and as someone who is currently wearing a t-shirt that has something printed on it that is mostly rubbing off and has holes in it, let's not let's not talk about my attire. It is what it is. It's one of those where it's like, it's my favorite shirt. It looks like shit. Obviously, I would never leave the house without it. I mean, wearing it. Well, I, I mean, take it everywhere. It's always in my both purse. Are true. <laughs> oh, that wasn't where my mind was. Go- okay, yeah. No, yeah, but, no. Um, fair. But all my blood and wine shirts are really in great condition. Unlike this one. <laughs> I'm honestly really impressed with just how they have held up and with spread shirt as a whole. So, yeah, if you're looking to get in some blood and wine merch. Check it out. We also have, like, mugs and posters and things like that. Pillows. But my favorite's the clothing. I think the poster is actually still sold out, but we're working with them to see if we can get that back up. Oh. Oh. Okay. Well, there. Don't get the poster. Sorry. (laughs) Check if it's in in stock when you're listening to this. I don't know. Um, But thank you all so much for tuning in. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, and with that, this is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye.